0: If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the little book of Titus. It's right after First and Second Timothy, just three chapters toward the end of the New Testament. Titus chapter one, as we begin our brand new series, "Saving Grace, Changing Grace," and as we get started on this, I want to uh, I want to just point out uh, something that was very profound to me very shortly after I became a Christian. I was encountering individuals who were making professions of faith, but there wasn't a whole lot of evidence of possession of faith, if you know what I mean. And uh, so I went to the store one day. I was going to buy a newspaper. That was the reason I was there. I had my quarter, went to stick it in the machine, the newspaper machine. And uh, just before I put it in there, I noticed that it was yesterday's paper in in the glass. I got thinking. What if the newspaper dude came, opened it up, and took all the old papers out and stuck new papers in, the present day's papers in, and then just shut it without changing the one in the glass? Now, would the inside be changed? Yeah, go like this. It's not a trick question. But I wasn't going to risk my quarter on yesterday's paper in the window. That is the essence of, of the book of Titus saving grace and changing grace real saving grace becomes actual changing grace to those whose profession is real results in possession and this is the message of Titus I love this little letter it's compact and it's packed calm that is it's packed full of common sense It doesn't lack in theology, as we're going to see here in a moment, but it's theology with hands and feet. It's theology of a life of real faith, both in the church and outside of the church, and what it should look like. Now, the time period of this epistle is about 30 years after Jesus died and rose again, early 60s, 63, give or take a year A.D. Titus is a is a convert of the Apostle Paul. You'll see that as we begin in the first four verses. I draw your attention there, Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, Promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus my true child in a common faith that's why we believe Paul led Titus to Christ grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior so there you have it the next verse tells us that Paul planted the gospel flag on the island of Crete, which is, if you'd see, uh, between Greece and modern-day Turkey, the Aegean Sea just south of there in the Mediterranean. Here is an island about 135 miles long, about 35 miles wide. That's the island of Crete. It's where Paul was shipwrecked, if you remember, if you've read the book of Acts. He apparently, we don't have a record of it, but he planted the gospel there, and then he drops Titus off. Verse five says he left him there. It's an interesting word in order to uh, create order. That's the word that's only used in the New Testament. We'll get back to that next week. Uh, Order in a messy situation in the church there. As for Titus, He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. We know that because in Galatians, Paul writes to Galatians and he, and he, and he says he did not have Titus circumcised. That was for theological reasons. Paul didn't want to put a feather in the legalistic Galatians uh, hat so he didn't have Titus circumcised. We don't know a whole lot more about him, although he's mentioned um, many times, especially in 2 Corinthians. We just know that Paul really, really trusted this dude. And there's no record of when he planted this church. It's sometime between his first and second imprisonments when he did, again, in order to set the church, in order uh, to, to, uh, to be able to live in a pagan culture much like yours and mine. Now, the island itself, Crete, is, was supposedly the birthplace of the mythical god, small g, Zeus, who was the king of all the gods on Mount Olympus. And it was, a, it was known as a very dark, morally dark society. It was an island filled with drunks, lazy, and liars. In fact, the Greeks literally invented a word from the Grecian culture. It's the word credenzo. It means, literally means to play the Grecian. And we're not talking Grecian formula here, okay? Play the Grecian or the, Gre- or the Cretan. It means literally to lie. They're liars, and we'll get to that again here in just a moment. But this epistle, which I love, Jay Vernon McGee, the old radio commentator, some of you are familiar with him, he's been gone with the Lord for many years, but he called the book of Titus, literally, quote, the measuring rod of whether a church is really a New Testament church. I was at lunch with a friend of mine not long ago, and he admitted to me, he said, you know, sometimes I feel like we're just we're just too comfortable at church. I thought, you need a good dose of Titus. You can't be comfortable if you apply this epistle to your life. And so hopefully that's the case here. And it's a very, it's a very James-like epistle, very hands-on, good theology, but he's really going to get practical about the way we act with one another amongst ourselves, outside in the world, He's very practical about these things. He's not really interested in the bells and whistles of church life. I mean, it would, in, a, in, a, in a society that was persecuted, it would be a really strange conversation for one pastor to say to another, hey, what kind of chairs do you use in your church? You know, what's your sound system like? What kind of technology are you using here? Paul's not interested in any of that. He's interested in Titus developing and appointing good godly leaders and get rid of the bad guys, And he doesn't pull any punches, and I purposely said the word good. Mark it down, the word good is used repeatedly in these three little chapters. Eight times to be exact. And really, the the most famous time is in a passage I'm going to ask you to memorize in the days to come, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, where Paul says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying or literally or renouncing or saying no to ungodliness and worldliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting or looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, wait for it, zealous for good works, and so repeatedly in this epistle, he's going to say, do good. I want you to do good. This is doing good out of the gospel. This is how the gospel, it emanates from a, from a real profession that has real possession internally coming out. So he says, repeatedly, do good, and to be zealous about it. Don't just, just don't, before good, but he says, be zealous for good works. That's a cool word. It's a word which means to boil over, to bubble over, to burn. And we, I mean, you, we meet people that are zealous all the time. Zealous businessmen, zealous salesmen, you know, zealous preachers. Are you zealous? I mean, we're all zealous to one degree or another, aren't we? I meet people that are zealous for knowledge, but if the knowledge doesn't produce something, as we'll see in a moment, it's no good. Zealous for recognition. you got to be known. You want somebody to recognize what you've done. You know, like the pastor who preaches the stem-winder message, you know, and then he gets in the car with his wife, and she doesn't say anything to him. They drive around. They go out to, to, to eat. She still doesn't say anything. They're on their way home. What I'm actually talking about a conversation I had with my own wife, so I'll stop right now. At any rate, just this desire for recognition this pride, zealous for ambition, zealous for causes of various kinds. Now, make no mistake, God wants us to be zealous. In fact, the writer of Proverbs just came to my mind and said, it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. So you got to have them together, right? He wants us to be zealous, to know God to grow in God, to show forth for God, and go in the grace of God, all for the glory of God. And we're going to try to apply this epistle to the Cretan church, to Sailorville church. Chapter one is all about doing good in the church. Chapter two is all about doing good with one another, amongst one another. And chapter three is all about doing good in the world. A gospel-centristic, you know, gospel-centered kind of good. That is, we know Christ, and out of it come these good works, right? Because Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So Paul's opening salvo, these opening words to Titus convey his passion for the church in Crete. And this morning, we want to apply it to Sailorville Church. And so with that, God is calling our church. He is calling our church, first of all, to develop servant leaders. Notice how the Apostle Paul describes himself here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. They're in juxtaposition, side by side, servant Apostle, servitude, and authority. The word servant is the one he he describes himself often in the New Testament. Doulos, it means a slave. He looks at himself as a lowly slave, and yet he's an apostle. That means to be sent or to be sent on a mission. And we know that if you were an apostle, you were in an elite group. He was definitely an authority in the church. But he starts with being a servant, our passion here at Sailorville Church is to raise up men and women not for self-glory. A passion, to a zeal, not for self-glory, but to serve and to lead. And in that order, I might add, you show me a man who refuses to serve, and I'll show you a man who does not deserve, nor is he equipped to lead. Now, as the pastor, the lead pastor, I have authority I wield authority. But if I'm not willing to pick up a broom, grab a shovel, stack chairs, pick up trash, I'm not worth my salt. I thought I'd get a few more amens out of that, at least. More people, what? More like Jesus, who said, The Son of Man has come, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. A ransom for many. I'm not big on cheesy expressions, but this one I like because it's easy to memorize, and it's true. Take the serve out of service, and you have ice. And this is the reason some of you, you know God, you might even be a member, you're flirted with membership, but you're not serving. That's why you're always grumpy, you're joyless, you're lethargic in your walk with God. You wonder where all of this is because you're, you're refusing to serve. God designed for you to know him, to grow in him, and to show forth for him his glory and through service. So that's our passion, to raise up servant leaders. Secondly, and I want you to get used to this expression because you're gonna hear it a lot more in the days to come. To know, grow, and show our faith. God is calling our church to know Grow and show forth our faith. Now look at verse one again. This is a this is a real mouthful. But he says, after describing himself as a servant and apostle, watch this: for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of doctrine in that one line. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. That points to purpose, it points to passion, it, that's the why, why is Paul here, why did he come? For the sake, for the sake of God's elect. It's, this, it's the exact same verbiage, same expression as he uses in 2 Timothy. When he says this, one of my favorite verses when we're talking about the doctrine of election which is just alluded to here. In 2 Timothy 2.10 it says, Paul says, therefore I endure all things, for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? I'm busting my hiney out there. For what? Oh, for the ones that God has picked beforehand to be saved. It, it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to point out here is that Paul never got hung up on the doctrine of election. Neither should you. God, he knew God was in charge and you should know that too. His duty, our duty, is to present the gospel to all that some may be saved. Amen? He uses the word knowledge here, don't miss it. He says, uh, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, you see that? That's not just your normal word gnosis, that's the normal Greek word for knowledge. It's an intensified word, it's the word epignosis. Epi is a prefix that just intensifies the word. The idea in this word knowledge is a knowledge that's experiential. A hands on, I'm doing something with my knowledge. The Jews had a a philosophy, I know, therefore I do. That's wisdom, right? That's the kind of knowledge that we're talking about here. And by the way, you you didn't even have to know that about the Greek word because if you just read the next line, he says, knowledge of truth which accords with godliness. So now he's just sort of describing what he's talking about with the knowledge. If your knowledge does not produce godliness, there's something dreadfully wrong. Yesterday's paper is still there. I don't know if the guts have been changed or not. You're the one who has to figure that out before God. But if yesterday's paper is still showing, that's a problem. That's a disconnect. I had a friend that mentored me years ago, and I was telling him about another guy who had made a profession of faith, but it was always yesterday's paper we were looking at. I said, well, he, he made a profession of faith, and my friend goes, well, you just tell him it didn't take. <laughs> okay, that was kind of a country bumpkin way of putting it, but I think he had a point. And and, and Paul is is saying that here to Titus. He's not pulling any punches. Look at the very last verse in the first chapter. Look at the first, this is powerful stuff. They, the false teachers, the false professors, I don't mean in the teaching, I mean they're professing a faith. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their what? By their works, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. So there you have it. Something is wrong. Something isn't connecting. If, uh, if you were to slide over to chapter 2 and verse 10 in, in Titus, you'd find my favorite line in this epistle, I, the, very, the very end of it. Many years ago, I just fell in love with this line. It says that we ought to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. I love that line. In fact, I almost titled this, this series of messages Adorning the Doctrine of God. That had been a cool title, wouldn't it? Adorn, that's a good word. It's the Greek word cosmeo. We get our word cosmetics. You know, I do this because that's what you women did before you came here, right? You did the cosmetic thing. What did that do to you? Did that change the structure of your face? Well, I guess you could say it depends on how much cosmetic you put on, but (laughs) it doesn't do that, does it? It just covers up the blemishes, the wrinkles, the the little things you don't want. And why do you do that? Why do you do that? I'm not against it, by the way. I'm just asking you why. You're doing it to make yourself more attractive. Isn't that why you're doing it? As I looked at that passage of scripture, and it said, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior and all things, this, 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 this thought struck me like a thunderbolt. I can't add to the doctrine of God, but I can adorn it. And that's what he's telling me to do. He's talking about having divine cosmetics. We're we're all supposed to be wearing divine cosmetics, so to speak. And what purpose does adornment have but to draw attention to something or to someone? I'm not like the Jacksons. We don't do the Christmas thing in the middle of the summer. There's just something wrong with that, okay? But we, I'm kidding, but, well, yeah, no, I'm really not. It's kind of too early for that, but. I'm actually a post-Thanksgiving guy, but not my wife won't have anything to do with it because she has the widows over, and so she uses that as an excuse before Thanksgiving to deck our place out for Christmas. And I leave, and my daughter comes in, and I come back at night, and I'm telling you, holy smokes, it's like eye-popping. It's so cool. It's so beautiful. I mean, the structure of the home didn't change internally or externally. It just looks prettier. It looks more beautiful that very night my sister-in-law came into town we were out on a call and she called my wife she knew how to get in and my wife said hey what are you doing she goes I'm just sitting here in the dark she goes you're in the dark well not really I'm not in the dark I have all the Christmas lights on and I'm just soaking it in I thought to myself what a compliment to the beautifiers amen now listen When your knowing produces growing and your growing starts showing, that is a beautiful thing. Would you agree? That's a beautiful thing. That's when you're adorning the doctrine of God. You're you're putting on that divine cosmetic. Now, speaking of soaking or soaking in, I think people are always soaking in something about us when we spend time with them. The question is, what are they soaking in? Are they soaking in your physical beauty, your physical masculinity, your incredible intelligence and wit? Or are they soaking in your critical spirit or your indolence, your laziness? Are they soaking in your ambivalence that you don't really care? Or are they soaking in a joyful spirit, your love for God, your love for the God? Everybody's soaking in something. And let's just, for the moment, just switch metaphors for a minute, from adornment to magnifying. We like that word, too. They kind of go together. We like that word magnify. We sing, magnify the Lord, right? And even the psalmist said, oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together, right? I love that verse. But what does it mean to magnify? And what are you doing when you magnify? The word magnify just means to make something seem bigger. You don't actually make something bigger when you magnify it, right? You just make it seem to be bigger. Isn't that what you're doing? I mean, am I, how do I magnify the Lord? When I sing loud? When I sing louder? When I raise my hands? I could be, but that's not what it's talking about. Not at all. And how do we make God bigger? You can't. God doesn't change. He's immutable. We can't make God bigger, but we can make God seem bigger. And that's what it means to magnify God. And and, and really, one of the greatest illustrations, and you've probably seen this, many of you, before, but I want to put it up there again, is in the Chronicles of Narnia, when this this, uh, spiritually adept little girl by the name of Lucy runs into Aslan. She hasn't seen him for some time And Aslan is a depiction of Jesus, and the encounter is very powerful, if you remember. Aslan said to Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You will find me bigger. I'll seem bigger. And that's the desire of Paul to Titus, that God's grace would both save us and be changing us so that others might see God as larger, as bigger, as magnified, as adorned in our lives. So, that's what God's calling Sailorville Church to. Raise up servant leaders to know, grow, and show our faith through this adornment. And to point others to God. To point one another to God, thirdly. And by the way, the word, I mean, the name of God is mentioned not one, two, three, but four times in four verses. And check out This is super cool, because Titus loves, Paul loves to Titus, the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. Let me show you. At the end of verse three, he says, by the command of God our Savior. I love that. God our Savior. And if you have any question as to who the Savior is, look at the very end of verse four. Grace and peace from God our Father, and Christ Jesus our what? Our Savior. What am I saying? When you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about God, Because Jesus is God. And by the way, not just God, he's the God who, middle of verse 2, never what? Never lies. Now I think that's interesting. The very first, one of the very first characteristics of God that Paul gives to Titus is negative. He never lies. Why don't you say he's the God of truth? Well, where was Titus at? He was on what island? He was in Crete. And you know something about Cretans? Look at verse 12. Paul tells us. He says, One of their prophets, one of the, uh, one of the, the uh, Cretan prophets of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In the next verse, Paul basically says, Yeah, that's pretty much true. They're a whole bunch of liars. And so, with that in mind, the very first thing Paul does is he says, God never lies. The Christian believers live in a veritable, veritable, veritable sea of lies, and so do you. So do you, so do I. Our whole culture's being swallowed up by lies, and some of you are buying into it. You just, you just don't know. If it, where it's the frog and the kettle deal. That's all it is, and we're and we're and we're and we're just soaking it up. I mean, I I just met with a dear saint the other day who's struggling with a mental malady, and there are lies that are creeping in and creeping in and creeping in. And I took him right here and I showed him, God never lies. God never lies. God never lies. He got that God doesn't lie by the time I was done with him. God doesn't lie. And in our battle against the lies of society that creep into our minds, that we embrace, and some of you have embraced these things. You gotta battle it with truth. You gotta battle it with God. And so God's people point God's people to God. Don't point it to pop psychology. Psychobabble, homeopathic this, homeopathic that. I'm so sick of this stuff. Point people to God. God. God is the answer to their issues. And God's people will point God's people to God. And it's a charge that I'm granting, giving to you this morning. I did this the other day with another one of our gals struggling with a life-threatening situation. And the old hymn, came to my mind where we read how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word what more can He say than to you he hath said who unto Jesus for refuge have fled Fear not, I'm with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That's God. When through deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials, thy pathway may lie. My grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And finally, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I will not. Desert to his foes that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake I'll never no never no never forsake amen? amen and I'm telling you that gal put that on her bathroom mirror in her Bible she's memorizing it because it's a reminder of God God's people pointing out to God's people, the God of God's people. Finally, God is calling our church as Paul was calling Titus to the churches in Crete to affirm the power of preaching the word. I love this because into my occupation here. I don't know if you missed it, but please don't. Verse three, at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now look, we love data. We live in a data-saturated generation, right? Daniel predicted this. I just thought of this in Daniel 12. Knowledge would be greatly increased in the latter times. We're living in those days, Data informs, and that's all it can do, and it's important to us. We, you know, we, we even do, uh, most of the time it helps, even in the announcements. We realized you know, through those who studied the data that you know, it's not smart to give an announcement that impacts less than 50% of your people. Now we just gave away one of our secrets. That's the reason why you know, Susie's tea party she's having over at Mary's isn't gonna get the announcement it's just the way it is. It only p- impacts six of you. And yet today, we just announced Gospel-Centered Recovery, which is, a, which is a ministry starting this very week. I'm, I'm so pumped about this. To those of you struggling with addictions of various kinds, especially substance addictions. Well, how many does that impact? 8% of you? 13? Maybe 19%? Hardly 50? Well, I don't know. But indirectly, probably a lot more, right? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, the importance of this ministry bears the importance of making the announcement. And the point is that sometimes the, the results of data don't, are sometimes a little bit misleading. Why am I saying that? Because we're talking about preaching here. The word is there. You see it. It's the word keruso. It's the word which means to herald. The idea is to herald the evangel, the gospel, And it's not just in the pulpit, but it is in this pulpit. It can take place all over the place. It's not just talking about the the, the vocational place of preaching. But hey, I'm going to take advantage of it. That's what I'm doing here. Preaching. I mean, how much time do you sit under preaching? 30 minutes. By the way, that's 0.3% of your week. 168 hours, 0.3% under this. Now, the data from that, might conclude that preaching is getting too much attention. Crying out loud, it's only 1.3%. Let's let's focus on other stuff. I mean, you're living 167 and a half hours otherwise. The data says we need to capture your attention for those other hours, and I would agree with that. But if we realize, if you realize, if Sailorville Church realizes the raw, unleashed, power and roar of this book, the amazing Holy Spirit power of this moment, yeah, all 30 minutes of it, then you'll never scoff or attempt by way of data to devalue this moment. Now, if I'm just putting up, you know, movie clips and telling you half a dozen cute stories, yeah, that's just a waste of your time and mine. But this is the time where we are preaching the message of the cross. That Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 is foolishness to those who who are being, who are lost. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It is, it, is, it is that which saves us. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine because the time is going to come when men will no longer endure sound doctrine but will heap up for themselves teachers because they want their ears tickled. Is that what you want? Please somebody say no. Thank you. Because God uses the preaching of the word to convert. Look at that word. Do you see the word manifested there in the text? It's in the middle of verse three. It's manifested. Paul says, at the proper time, God manifested in his word through preaching. If you have an NIV, it rightly—it's that's a great translation, the NIV in this case. It does, it nails it. Brought to light. That's what the word manifest means, to be brought up to a light. You do that so you can see it better. And the idea is that preaching, the preaching of the Word of God, the gospel of Christ, is that which will convert you. It gives you the aha moment. How many here have been changed, saved, or challenged in one way or another just by preaching of the Word? Raise your hand. That's almost all of you and should be. That's what God does through the preaching of the Word. Some of you are yet to be converted. I know. And it's not just preaching, it's preaching the Word. And not just in the pulpit, but in the hallways. At the supper table, at your work, over a cup of coffee, and even in line at a reception at a wedding. I tell you that because this is how I'm concluding today. A friend of mine is a missionary to Thailand. Not our own missionary that we support from a different denomination, but we were talking into the wee hours of last night through social media. He's getting ready to go back to Thailand. I was hoping he'd be here this morning to share this testimony. Just couldn't make it. Wanted to. He affirmed everything. About eight years ago, I was in my office, and I got, a, I got buzzed in from, the, from one of the secretaries and said, Pastor, there's a guy who's been trying to get in for the last couple of weeks, and we have just been putting him off because he's a missionary, and he probably just wants our money, and he's not really from our denominational construct. He was from a gospel preaching church, but we just figured he's trying to become a missionary. We've just kind of put him off, but he keeps insisting that he knows you and, I, and he, his name is Paul Kramer, and I said, Paul Kramer? I, the only Paul Kramer I've ever known I wrestled with about 40 years ago, that was him. So I took the call. He says, geez, man, what's the guy got to do to get through to you? I said, hey, Paul, I'm so sorry. He goes, that's okay. Hey, hey, look, dude, I'm getting ready to leave uh, out of the country. I just wanted to call you and say thank you before I did. I said, "Ah, oh, Jay, you're welcome. Uh, what are you thanking me for? He goes, you, you don't remember, do you? Of course I didn't. He said, Pat, 25 years ago, we were in line at your brother Bobby's wedding. And we had to wait a long time. And you shared the gospel with me and my wife. You took a long time to share. It. You don't remember. I said, oh, Paul, I don't remember that, but I'm glad I did. He goes, yeah, well, let me tell you something. I thought of that encounter not once in a while. I thought of that encounter every single day for 22 years. And three years ago, I finally gave in. Trusted Christ as my Savior. My wife did too. We've dedicated our lives to Christ. We're on our way to Thailand to be missionaries. That encounter with the Word of God and the message of Christ brewed in him for 22 years before he surrendered his heart to Jesus. That's the power of God's Word, that's the power of preaching. You don't ever want to devalue it, ever. And folks, seriously, you're not guaranteed 22 minutes, much less 22 years. And some of you continue to resist and continue to resist. You're a a professor, but you're not a possessor. Your life has never been radically changed by the gospel. And when saving grace comes in, changing grace comes in. If that's you, I don't care how moral or upright you are, you need to be saved. And maybe your life is anything but moral and upright, and you're just realizing by the Spirit now, you need to humble your heart and for the first real time ever repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus. Would you do that? Could you do that? Of course you can. And Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out saving grace is changing grace is it changing you let's pray god thank you so much for your word for this time for this opening session in titus and for the apostle paul's call to true servant leadership to knowing you, growing in you, and showing before others your grace in our lives. God, we need to be pointed to you, and I pray that we would accept the challenge of pointing one another to you, and to never, never devalue the importance of this moment in your word. God, I'm praying, just as you used the Apostle Paul's preaching, you would use this preaching as frail and fallible as it is to save someone in this room right now if that's you dear friend and you would admit i i've been resisting the truth too long the spirit of god's talking to me friend humble yourself and trust jesus right now just from your heart acknowledge your sin just just do that Believe that Jesus, believe what you've had in your head for years. Believe that Jesus died for you personally and rose again. Ask him for forgiveness. Turn to him and you'll be saved. And those of you who know Jesus, really you know him. But you would say the cosmetic doesn't look real good. The adornment isn't there. Would you you make a commitment before God right now to adorn the doctrine of your God by allowing Him to stop resisting Him, to change your life inside so yesterday's paper doesn't keep showing up? God, we pray these things in Jesus' name.